just educating people in what God requires and what God forbids actually shows that it makes things worse, not better. That's what we learned when we studied Romans chapter 7, verse 5 a couple of weeks ago. What's more in Romans chapter 7, if we're just trying to educate people in what God requires and get them to agree, yes, God requires this and He forbids that. The problem is, in Romans chapter 7, verse 14, we've learned they remain in bondage to sin. Education doesn't free anyone. Not only that, according to Romans 7, 23, we remain prisoners of the law of sin. Even though we know what's right, even though we might want to do what's right, we're still prisoners. Romans chapter 7, verse 18, we're devoid of any true good still, even though we're educated. Romans seven nineteen. even if we agree that this is what God requires, we still lack the ability to do what He requires. So educated or not, we remain under the just condemnation of God. Dark, isn't it? Not hopeful, not encouraging, not your best life now. It's bad. It's dark. It's gloomy. It's ugly. It's depressing. And I'm so thankful for Romans chapter 8. Because Romans chapter 8, get ready for this, this is rocket science, comes after Romans chapter 7. (laughs) And we've seen the darkness of the bondage, and then we get to Romans chapter 8. And Romans 8 begins with saying there's no condemnation. Romans chapter 8 ends with there is no separation from God. And it's talking about those of us who, by the grace of God, have believed in Christ. We've trusted in Christ. There is no condemnation and there is no separation. Those are the bookends of Romans 8. And it is an absolute buffet of wonderful truth in between. Romans 8 has been called a favorite chapter by many, many Christians who've gone before us. No doubt there are some of you who think Romans 8 is your favorite. I would say it's my favorite, but by now I probably have... 200 favorite chapters, passages, but for today it's going to be our favorite. And in light of Romans chapter 7, it's certainly going to be a favorite. Romans 8 is just a great, great truth fest, if you will, to us from God. Romans 8 is about assurance. Romans 8 is about hope. And both of those center on Christ. And, and again, it's, I was talking to someone after the first service today, and they said, I'm so glad I heard the darkness of Romans 7 Because while I've always loved Romans 8, I love Romans 8 even more now. And I thought, you know what, that makes sense. God laid it out that way that we would see Romans 7 first. Well, this morning what we're going to do is look at Romans 8, 1 to 4. And as we look at those four verses, we'll see what I will label two sure reasons why there is no condemnation for believers Two sure or two assurance-giving reasons, if you want to. Two sure reasons why there is no condemnation for you if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Christ. Let me preview those two reasons now. Number one, the Holy Spirit applies the work of the Son. The Holy Spirit applies the work of the Son, and we see this Let's say verses 1 and 2, really it's in verse 2. Verse 1 is introductory. 
the Holy Spirit applies the work of the Son, that's going to be the first great reason why we are not condemned. And the second great reason is because the Son's fulfillment of the law. The Son's, meaning Christ's, fulfillment of the law. We see this in verses 3 and 4. So here's what's happening. We're going to be impressed that we're not condemned even though we deserve to be condemned and it's because of Christ that we are not condemned. But then he goes even deeper and he gives us these two deeper anchors, if you will, proving, if you will, why that is the case. Reason number one, reason number two, we'll look at the whole thing together. But now let's read the passage together. I don't know why I didn't do this earlier. Uh, This is the best part. You can forget about all the introduction, forget about everything that comes after. This is the best part, reading the text. Remember Romans 7, it's dark. Then we get to Romans 8, 1. Follow along with me as we read God's Word. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ, Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, Weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Now what we're going to do is center solely and focus solely on verse 1. Then we're going to get to the two reasons, okay? Sometimes, so let's, let's, let's just enjoy this. Let, let's meditate on verse 1. This is really the, the, the great, powerful truth that comes out of the wake of Romans chapter 7. Look again at Romans 8.1 where it says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I love that verse. I love what it says. I just want to stay there the whole time. I want to think about it. I want to talk about it. I want to meditate on it. I want to dwell upon it. I want to praise God for it. And we're going to take some time to look at the details. I know sometimes you look at too too much of the details, you lose sight of the big picture. This is not one of those times. Big picture is, you're not condemned even though you deserve to be condemned because of what Christ has done. But let's look at each of the parts so that we can be more impressed with Christ. Let's look at each of the details so that we can say, yes, indeed, this is better than we even might have imagined. The first detail I'd like you to notice about verse 1, again, this is introductory, is the fact that this is meant to be, meant to be felt. It is meant to, to, to be powerful and even to be felt by us. Here's what I mean. Let me literally read what... The Greek New Testament actually says, the first three Greek words are translated this way, Know therefore now. The first word after Romans chapter 7, which is so dark, is know. And it's meant to be by way of contrast. It's meant to be what they call emphatic. Dark, 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 dark. And then it's know. Therefore now there's no condemnation. I feel that, you know, I'm not a feeling person, I'm more, I'm more of an a objective, cognitive person, but, but I feel this, I feel this alright, bondage, 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 Romans 7, I felt that, 
Certainly the writer of Romans 7 feels that, the absolute frustration and doom and gloom of no victory. And then it's, no! Yeah, we should feel that all right. No condemnation. This is fantastic. None at all whatsoever know is what he's saying. How great is that? Well, let's look at some more details. The now points to the work of Christ, no doubt. Look again at verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now that Christ has come and lived a perfect life for sinners, now that Christ has come and delivered Himself up to be crucified and die in place of sinners, now that Christ has been raised from the dead, now there's no condemnation. He used the same now, the same idea, the same contrast in chapter 7, verse 6. Now we've been released from the law. Having believed in Christ and now gained benefit from all of His work, now there's no condemnation. The central focal point of redemptive history is the cross. How about the focal point of all of history? And it's marked in verse 1 by saying, Now! Ah! This is what it's all been pointing toward. It's been pointing toward Christ. Another detail worthy of our notice is even that first word in our English translations. In verse 1 we read, Therefore. Therefore, no doubt, is first pointing back to chapter 7. You know, when I I think of chapter 7, I think of words like defeat. I think of words like frustration. I think of words, to be honest, like Hideous. You know, we have that glimmer of hope in there because he does talk about Christ to give us a preview. But apart from that, the writer of Romans 7 never gives us any kind of glimpse of personal victory. It's frustration. It's gloom. It's dark. It's dismal. And so when we hear all of that and then we get to Romans 8, 1 and it says... Therefore, there's no condemnation. It's the, it, it's the high point. It's the yes. Now there's no condemnation because of Christ. Looking at a little bit more of the details, there's something more to it though. It points to chapter 7, but also when you see that word therefore, no doubt it points even further back. Let me explain to you why I would say that. When it says in chapter 8, verse 1, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, no doubt it's pointing even earlier than Romans 7, that therefore connector. And we know that because the, the word that's used for condemnation in Romans 8, 1, if I recall, is only used two other times. That Greek word, is exact Greek word, is only used two other times, and it's used in Romans 5 both times. So he's expecting us to go back even further than Romans 7, even back to Romans 5 in our minds. We're not going to take the time to go to the specific usages, but it's used in 5.18 and it's used in 5.16. And you say, what's significant about that? Think with me about what's been happening in Romans. When he says, therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And if that therefore is connected to something that came earlier when he was talking about condemnation before, which is in Romans chapter 5, 
what we're seeing in Romans 8 is a building of that argument, an unpacking of that argument, maybe an elaboration upon that argument. One commentator says it's a snowball effect. He's resuming what he was talking about in chapter 5, that we're not under condemnation anymore, and, and he's building upon it and showing that it's even better than we even thought earlier when we were talking about it in chapter 5. If you recall, again, just by way of quick review, Romans chapter 5 has so much to do with the fact that, that even though we're sinners, even though we were enemies of God, it talks about that in Romans chapter 5, it says, therefore now having been justified by faith, right? We have peace with God. So we've got justification in Romans chapter 5. We deserve condemnation, but we receive through faith in Christ justification. To be justified is to be declared righteous even though you're not. It's based upon the merits of Christ, not your own. That's Romans 5. Well, what happens then in Romans chapter 8 is he's reaching back and he's building upon that great reality of justification based upon the work of Christ that is applied to you through faith and he's even making it more profound and even grander than it is in Romans chapter 5 as if that's possible. There's no condemnation. Well, that's like the twin truth of the fact that there is justification. Romans 5, we have justification even though we deserve condemnation. And then Romans chapter 8, there is no condemnation. In fact, maybe we could even step back and and, and revisit Romans in the big picture. The heart of Romans really is, is 5. Maybe we could go back to 4 and 3. 3, 4, and 5 provide the central focus of Romans. And then remember, we get to verse 6, and Paul's answering an objection. And then we get to Romans 7, and he's answering an objection. And now we're in Romans 8, and he's resuming what he was talking about, which is the great reality of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is also implying there's no condemnation. So he's picking up where he left off, if you will in a rich and profound and wonderful way. So when you see the therefore, you know he's connecting something. Well, no doubt he's connecting chapter 7, but he's connecting the heart of the argument. He's connecting the central focus of everything. And the central focus of everything is Christ. Do notice that as well in chapter 8, verse 1. Chapter 8, verse 1. The center is Christ. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for you if you are in Christ. And we should talk about that for a moment. We're not even to to the outline yet. Isn't this wonderful? This is longer than most sermons average in the entire country. Man, you you don't even have to pay extra for this. Come to Omaha Bible Church, you get a bargain of a deal. Thank you for the courtesy laughs. (laughs) No sense getting to the reasons until, until we see just how great this is. Well, this is great because it's in Christ that all of this happens. The reason, how about this? The reason I can have confidence and assurance to stand before God, not condemned even though I deserve to be condemned. The reason I can have confidence and assurance is because I am in Christ. Now, for the longest time in my Christian life, I didn't know what that meant. I knew it was all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. It talks about people being in Christ. And you're probably smarter than I am, so you don't need to be reminded of this, but I'll I'll go ahead for those of you who are more like me and say, in Christ means union with Christ. It means being united with Christ. And and it is like shorthand for being a Christian. 
It's a technical term for being a Christian in the New Testament. So don't be intimidated when you see it and you think, in Christ, what does it mean to be in Christ? It's just union, uh, unified with Him. And it's what happens when you believe in Him. You're unified with Him. And here's where that becomes significant and important. As I stand before God, I don't stand condemned any longer, even though I deserve to stand condemned. Why? Because I'm in Christ. I'm united with Christ. And he's going to unpack the details of this later in our passage. But because Christ lived for me, obeying the law for me, because Christ absorbed the wrath of God at Calvary for me, because he rose again from the dead for me, and I am in him, I am united with him, now I can stand before God's tribunal, I can stand at God's dock, to use Old English, Sure. No condemnation. Even though there should be. Why? Because of Christ. It's because of Him. How sweet is that truth? But then the question comes, how can this be? Is this what we want to have as true? I mean, is there any like support for this other than just one verse? I mean, is there more to it? And that's where we get to our two reasons. He gives those two reasons to sink the anchors in deep to argue this, that this is not just something that we want to be true. This isn't just fanciful thinking. This isn't just pie in the sky. We hope this is how it is. He's going to say, all right, now let me come and put my arm around you and let's take a walk. Let me show you why this is objectively, logically true. There is no condemnation for you if you are in Christ and let me show you how that can be said. It's good stuff. Remember, this is all about you being able to be sure that you're not condemned. Well, he gives us these two sure reasons why Romans 8.1 can be so good. Ready to go? Ready for the sermon to start? All right. Ready? Here we go. As you can tell, I'm a little excited about this. If you can't get excited about Romans chapter 8, you must not be spiritually alive. Okay, I mean, this is, this is it. This is where it's at. I mean, this is, this is everything to us. Reason number one, the Holy Spirit applies the work of the Son. Okay, we come off of verse one, the great declaration, the great statement, and then we come to that reason, and look in verse two where you see it unpacked. For, see, that's the key, that it's a, it's a reason, that English word for. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. (laughs) Now I chuckle because when I read that verse, it's less than obvious what he's saying. Again, most of you are smarter than I am. But when you read it and you think, that sounds biblical, (laughs) but I'm not really exactly sure what the point is. And here's the beauty of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is easy to understand big picture because you read it and you say, that's my favorite. I love Romans 8. No condemnation, no separation. And then you start looking into the details and you think, I don't really, I don't get it. 
Well, that's probably partly the beauty of the Bible. Little kids can understand the big picture, and some of us older people can understand the big picture, and yet at the same time, it takes some work to understand the depth and the details. I think I can help you understand Romans 8, 2 a bit better if we just look at a couple of things and engage our minds. So don't turn your mind off, and let's see why he would say what he says the way he says it. The key is looking at the end of verse 2. The end of verse 2, he says, the law of sin and of death. He's borrowing from chapter 7. That verbiage is in chapter 7. In chapter 7, and we'll see the verses in just a second, but let me give you the idea. The idea is that we're under the law of sin, under the domain of sin, under the authority of sin. Okay? And that leads to death. It's bad news for you and bad news for me as sinners. We're under the authority of sin. We're under the domain of sin. And that means we're going to face death, ultimately eternal death. So what he does in chapter 8 is he shows us the way out of that, but he maintains the verbiage. He uses that verbiage to come up with a title for the Holy Spirit but he uses consistent verbiage so that we can see, ah, that problem of Romans 7 has been answered by the Spirit applying the work of Christ. Hope I didn't just lose you. I hope that helps and doesn't make it worse. Look with me, if you would, as we look at this uh, passage. You can just glance. I'm not going to take the time to read it. But this idea at the end of verse 2, the law of sin and death, well, that came from chapter 7, verse 23. That came from chapter 7, verse 25. This, this, this law of sin is a problem because we're, we're prisoners to the law of sin. We need to get out, of, out from under the law of sin or the, the authority of sin. That's the problem. Chapter 7, verse 5, chapter 7, verse 24 would teach us that the law, the law brings death. That, that's our, that's our, the nemesis. That's, that's the archenemy. That's what we want to be freed from. Well, he maintains the verbiage so we can see that when he comes to chapter 8, verse 2, and says, For the law, the authority, the power of the Spirit of life in Christ has set you free from the law of sin and death. That's a long way around me saying, that's where I came up with my summary of reason number one. The Holy Spirit applies the work of the Son. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He's just using a title that is fitting with his verbiage in the passage. You see, Christ, yes, can come. Christ can die a sinner's death. Christ can rise again from the dead. But somehow it's got to be appropriated. or Somehow it has to be applied. Somehow, we're not talking about this, this universal atonement where Christ comes and dies and everyone is saved, done deal, universalism. We need the Spirit. We need the Spirit to then make applicable, to appropriate, to bring into our lives, to apply the work of the Son. And that supports his argument in chapter 8, verse 1. There's no condemnation. How how could that be? Well, because of Jesus. Yeah, but you know what? Uh, Jesus is not me. He's outside of me. I, I don't get it. Well, then he explains himself with this reason. For the law of the Spirit of life, he's using that as a title for the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. Challenging verse to interpret, but I think if you keep it in context, it's not overwhelmingly difficult. 
I do want you to look at a similar passage that's also a little bit challenging, and it's 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. If you turn two books to the right, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6, a very familiar passage. It's pretty famous. We quote it a lot, and it's one of those we quote it a lot, and we don't really think about what it means, but essentially I think it means the same thing as Romans 8, verse 2. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 6. He's talking about his apostleship and uh, being a minister of the new covenant. But then look about halfway through the verse where it says, not the letter, but of the Spirit. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. And then at the end is what I really want you to see where it says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And a lot of times we read that verse, we quote that verse, and we have no idea what it means. But it sure sounds spiritual, right? You know what? The letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Oh, yeah, it's deep. Mm, yep. That's a Bible verse, all right. And uh, that, that Bible verse means something. Obviously means something to you because you're going, mm, yeah, yes, Lord. <laughs> but we've never really thought about what it means, what it's saying. It's, it's not just some out there weird idea, well, the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life, as if the Spirit, you know, the Spirit of the Force, may the Spirit of the Force be with you, mm, you know. That's not the idea. The idea is this, it's rather clear. The letter kills, speaking of the law. Not because the law is bad. Remember, we learned in Romans chapter 7, the law is good. The problem is, we're not, we're sinners. And so where God has His law, His righteous standard, we don't meet it, it's a death sentence. The letter, the law, kills. The Spirit gives life. Well, well how? Devoid of everything? It just somehow zaps you? It just somehow just you know, gives you life? No. The Spirit gives life in light of Romans chapter 8 because it applies what Christ has done in His atoning sacrifice and in His righteous life to you. The Spirit gives life. Even in Romans chapter 8, if you want to go back there, so many times everyone wants to say Romans 8 is all about the Spirit, all about the Spirit, all about the Spirit, all about the Spirit. All these many, many times the Spirit uh, is talked about in Romans chapter 8. And I agree with all of that. But even in our text, the Spirit does not work somehow in isolation. It's the Spirit, notice in verse 2 again of Romans 8, in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. What we see marvelously is we see the Father sending the Son and then applying the work of the Son through the Spirit. How can I be so sure that I'm going to stand before God and His holy and righteous judgment and not be condemned? The work of Christ on my behalf applied to me by God the Spirit. I am not going to face condemnation. And neither are you if you're a believer in Christ. Pretty good stuff, huh? Come on. How many of you ever watched a Husker football game? Yeah. yeah, come on, Tim Green in the front row. I've sat in your seats before. Go, Huskers. Yeah. Amen, brother. You know? And, and the Huskers lose a lot. 
You know? And you're like, yeah, go big red, man, get them! And you're not even sure if they're going to win or not. I'm pretty sure they're going to lose a lot, right? Sorry. I am sure that while I deserve to go to hell forever for what I have done, I'm sure of it. But I am also sure, based upon the perfect righteous work of Christ, applied to me by the power of the Spirit, that I am not going to be condemned. I win no matter what. Thank you, Jesus. Yeah, right? Come on. Don't be a loser. You cheer for your losing team more than you cheer for what's absolutely objectively true. Isn't Christ great? He's, he's matchlessly so. And I'm being silly and I know all that to make sure you're paying attention and all that kind of stuff. But really, really. I mean, I'm tempted to become a charismatic. I mean, come on. <laughs> we of all people who have theology that's not completely convoluted should be, right? This is great stuff. Romans 8, 1, starting with the great word, no! <laughs> no condemnation. Because of him, what he's done, applied to me by the power of the Spirit, it's just great. It does not get any better than this. A second reason why we have no condemnation, why we can have assurance, why we can be certain of salvation and lack of condemnation and justification, not lack of, but having it. Number two, the son's fulfillment of the law. And this has already come up in verse one. I can't help myself. However you cut me, I have to bleed and talk about the righteous work of Christ. And so this isn't going to be anything new, but it's going to be better because it's in the actual text in verses three and four. Look at verse 3 with me, if you would. For what the law could not do. Now he is talking about the Old Testament Mosaic law, no doubt. What the law could not do. Not because it's bad, but because we are. That's what we learned in Romans chapter 7. What the law could not do, weak as it was, through the flesh. That is, through our sinfulness. Because of our sinfulness. And then it says in verse 3, God did. And I want to stop there just for a second. Because I love that verse. I love that part of that verse. I love the ending of it. And even in my translation, maybe like some of yours, they italicize that word did because it's actually not there. I actually like the awkwardness because it carries an even, I think, more forceful punch. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God. Isn't that good? Yeah, it's implied that God did something, so it's appropriate that the translators added that word, but I like it that they let us know that they added it by italicizing it. What is humanly impossible, what you could never possibly ever, ever do by anything you could ever do to be redundant, God. God did. Tell me you don't believe in salvation by grace alone, and I'll say you must not believe that. God did what couldn't be done. We're lawbreakers. He's promised to judge lawbreakers. And so we're, we're in this inescapable position. And what could not possibly be done through, through religious catechizing, giving us the law, telling us what's right, telling us what's wrong, it couldn't be done. And then he says, God did it. Yeah. 
And here's how he did it. It gets better. This is, this is off the charts good. Verse 3 goes on to say, here's how, here's how God did this. Sending his own son. That's a sermon series in and of itself. So I get to start over again. <laughs> I mean, we're not going to do that, but at least appreciate the richness of it. How, how did God do what couldn't be done? Getting us out of the, out from under condemnation. Sending his own son. That's got love written all over it. It has grace written all over it. He sent his own son. That's what it cost him. Think about this. As theologians have have helped us to understand, nothing ever costed God anything but this one thing. See, God is all-powerful. God has everything. God owns everything. Nothing has ever cost God anything except for this one thing, redemption. He sent his own son. It's just too good, if that's possible. Well, he continues on. In the likeness of sinful flesh. (laughs) We need to stop there for a second, too. The Apostle Paul's doing this, you know. He's describing what happened in having Christ come and fulfill the righteousness of the law. And, and he says, in the likeness of sinful flesh, he's doing this, which I know is really hard to see on iTunes, okay, <laughs> for people who download this. But he, he, he's, he's on the tightrope. He's being careful. He's being cautious about what he's saying here. He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Well, why do I say he, he's being careful about what he says? Well, because... If Jesus is a sinner, then he can't be the perfect spotless lamb of God and and he can't be God and it's all a sham. Hebrews chapter 4, just for, for starters, verse 15 says he was tempted in all things, yet what? Without sin. But at the same time, if you push that further than the Bible does and you try to run the other direction to avoid error, you run the other direction and say he actually never even came here. Or better yet, he never became one of us. You know, Jesus was a phantom. Jesus was just, you know, part of the Jesus spirit or something like that. Well, that's a problem too because we need someone who's part of our race to die for us. We actually need him to come here and obey the law for us. Just as Adam was a real part of the human race, we need the second Adam to do the same and to lead us into righteousness and to die for us, and to rise again for us. And so he says, as the verse says, see, I'm even going to be careful to read it that way and not elaborate. In the likeness of sinful flesh, right? He became part of humanity, we're fallen, so in the likeness of human flesh, but he actually did come here, and he actually was real. We could look at other passages to to support and defend that as well. Now, I don't know how that works. I could quote theologians that would be helpful. But I don't know exactly how that works. He's sinless, and he was actually part of the human race. Just leave it alone. Okay? I don't know much beyond that, and neither do you. (laughs) Okay? And as soon as we write PhD dissertations on it, and we try to get too complicated and too sophisticated because we've figured it out, we find ourselves plunging head into blasphemous thinking about God. It's been done over and over and over again. So, Paul's being careful. He really came here. 
but he was not part of the sinful human race as a sinner. But he was part of the human race because he was real so he could deal with our sins at the cross. Let's keep going then. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, really becoming part of who we are, and yet not sinful. Then verse 3 goes on to say, and as an offering for sin. Literally, and and for sin. Our translators add as an offering for sin because it's, it's taking, uh, the, the Greek word actually comes from, from Old Testament sacrificial system, so the idea is offering, so it's a legitimate way to translate this. Just like the Old Testament, you've got the sacrificial system to atone for sins. You know what? Jesus Christ came as the ultimate atoning sacrifice is what's happening here. How could we be not under condemnation anymore? Well, because what the law could not do, God did through Christ here in our verse as an offering for sin. And then in verse 3, he says, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's where you want to draw a line between he condemns sin in the flesh back up to verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Slightly different word. One is a noun and one is a verb, but no doubt the Apostle Paul wants wants us to see the connection. How can we not be under condemnation? Well, verse 3, he condemned sin in the flesh. That's how. How can I stand here and know with any level of certainty, not to mention a a, a great certainty, I'm not standing under the condemnation of God because of what Jesus did when he came here. Because when Jesus came here, what does the text say? He condemned sin in the flesh. It's good, huh? Logical. When I was studying this, it reminded me of that song that I like so much, Hallelujah, What a Savior. I think we're going to sing it at the end of the service today. I hope you sing it like you're at a Husker game. (laughs) And that specific second stanza that says, Bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood, Hallelujah, What a Savior. No doubt taken from, influenced by our text. Verse 3, He condemned sin in the flesh. In my place condemned He stood. He was condemned by the Father, if you will, because He was dying in place of sinners. And by doing so, He condemned sin. So that we would stand before God not condemned. How good is that? It's so good. We're not going to take the time to do it. We can look at other passages that talk about this. 2 Corinthians 5.21 is the key one. Romans 3.25 as well. Galatians 3.13. But time is running, so I must as well. Let's progress and look at verse 4. Finally, we learn a little bit more about why this happened to the Son. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. 
Another challenging verse to interpret even. Now, whatever it means, it's good, don't you think? <laughs> I mean, by now, you just know, whatever that means, I want that, and it's a good deal, and Lord, you're pretty good to do this for me. Now, some take verse 4 to be talking about how, because of what Christ has done, we live different lives. And that is true. We learned that clearly in Romans chapter 6. We're freed from the bondage of sin and we don't continue to live in sin. And so that absolutely is true. Others take this verse, verse 4 of Romans 8, is not so much what we actually do, but continuing on with what's being uh, unpacked and that's what Christ has done. And I go for the latter of the two. Dominant view surrounding the Reformation as well, getting back to this idea of what Christ has done for us. Our sureness is not in our living a new life. Our sureness is in what He did for us. It's a challenging verse, but let me show you why I'll take the view that I take. First of all, look at the fact that it says in verse 4, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now, for, for starters, when you look at that statement, while I don't live the same way I used to live when I was an unbeliever, thanks be to God, I don't do that. I, I wouldn't want to stand before you and say, yes, I'm living a godly life so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in me. The, re the requirement of the law? I've never met the requirement of the law by my righteous living for a second. If you really want to know my motives and you really want to look behind everything, I, I, I would not want to stand here and say, yeah, I do that. Maybe you can say that. I don't think so. <laughs> Love you. <laughs> so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Well, another thing to add to the mix here in understanding this, might be fulfilled is a passive verb. I know we're getting technical now, but it's important. Might be fulfilled. Passive verb. It's not pointing towards something you yourself actually do. It's pointing towards something that is done in and for you. That's significant. I think this is about Christ's work on my behalf and not about me and what I do. So let's relook at the verse in light of some of those technical points and perhaps it might help this time through. Verse 4, so that the requirement of the law... Pause. What's that? Try to have your good outweigh your bad? Try to have more good days than bad days? So that the requirement of the law, that's perfection. That's perfect righteousness. So that the requirement of the law, perfect righteousness, might be fulfilled in us. Well, remember the passive verb, might be fulfilled in us. This is done again on our behalf by someone else. This is talking, I think, about Christ. All by Christ. With that in mind, you keep reading verse 4 where it says, Who do not walk according to the flesh. That is, according to our sinful human fallenness. It's not how we do this. But according to the Spirit. And I want to connect the Spirit back to what we learned about the Spirit earlier in verse 2, that He applies the work of the Son. Granted, it's a challenging passage. Because it's talking about our walking. But I think it's just talking about our life. And it's coming to us, in us, through the power of the Spirit. 
Someone put it this way, so the righteous obedience of Christ is transferred to us. I like what Doug Moo said in his commentary on this when he said, the law's just demand is fulfilled. I like this because let's not, let's not avoid making it personal. The law's just demand is fulfilled in Christians. It really does happen in me. The verse talks about that. Not through their own acts of obedience, but through their incorporation into Christ, their union with Christ. He fulfilled the law, and in him believers also fulfill the law perfectly so that they may be pronounced righteous, free from condemnation. How do we fulfill the law perfectly? If we're in Christ, and if His work has been applied to us by the Spirit, we fulfill the law perfectly. And if I were to tell you what I wrote in my notes under that quote from Doug Moo, I would tell you that I wrote, killer. (laughs) But I won't tell you what I wrote in my notes, because it doesn't sound sophisticated. Well, I just did. It is killer. Think about it. So the law is fulfilled in me, but not through what I do in my sinful human flesh. It's fulfilled in me, all right. It's fulfilled in me based upon the perfect merits of Christ. It's the passive tense, and it's applied by the power of the Spirit. And so here's where it all comes to a high point. Here's where it all gets wonderful and great, where it's been all along. We go back to this reality of I stand before God, and God sees me as perfect. The righteous requirements of the law have been perfectly fulfilled in me. Now, you ask my wife. She's here, second hour. You're privileged. She knows that that's not really true when it comes to my life. She, of all people, when she hears passive tense verbs, says, Amen, right? (laughs) I, based upon my actions, have not fulfilled the law perfectly. And if it's up to me to do that, then I, of all people, am absolutely smoked before God. But if Christ fulfilled the law perfectly, obeying the law perfectly, on my behalf, and that work is applied to me by the power of the Spirit, this can be true. And I can stand before God, as Romans 8, 1 talked about, able to say, No! Therefore, now, there is no condemnation, because I am in Christ by the power of the Spirit. Isn't that great? It's just off the charts great. Because of what He has done. This, my friends, is why we gather and we sing songs not about ourselves. This is why we gather and we don't pray to ourselves. This is why we have worship services and the object of our worship is not self. This is why we serve not self if we're Christians because we are absolutely enamored and our attention is riveted upon the perfect crucified, risen Savior. This is why Christianity is about Christ. And this is why it stands different from every other religion on the planet. Because it is about Him and what He's done. But unlike every other religion on the planet, it and it alone, therefore, allows for statements like, No! Therefore, now there is No condemnation. True biblical Christianity is the only religion I know of that has certain assurance 
of salvation. You know why? Because it doesn't depend upon what you do or what I do. Because if it does, you cannot be sure. And neither can I. But if it's passive tense verb, what he has done, applied to me by the Spirit, I'm as sure as Christ came, lived, died, and rose again. That's what it's all about. So pray with me if you would. Father, thank you for this morning and thank you for this great time to talk about Christ. That there is no condemnation. There is no condemnation whatsoever because Christ condemned sin through His perfect work. This is certainly anything but pride-inducing. This just causes us to be humbled and to be thankful. Lord, thank You that we see You working in so many unique ways in our salvation, that You sent Your Son, You the Father, that Your Son then came and atoned for our sins. And His perfect atonement and His perfect righteousness is applied to us by the power of the Spirit. Indeed, we worship You, the triune God who loves us and who gives us eternal life. In Jesus' name, Amen.